Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo, if I forgot to say that earlier. So we're glad to have you here with us. If you uh, are not from the area, if you happen to be visiting this weekend, or if you, uh, this is your first winter here in Buffalo, there's a few things uh, that you've experienced this week, uh, maybe that you weren't ready for. Um, really what ends up happening now, we've had this big pile of snow come in and just kind of dump on top of us. And then now, as the streets begin to as the, as, as moisten, if that's the right word, there starts to get this garbage that's everywhere, right? As much as you didn't like last week, I am not looking forward to this week because what you have everywhere you go, you have four, five, six inches of this slush that's everywhere. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? This this mess that is waiting for us. And if you're not from this area, you don't realize that that's actually way worse than the snow. It's this garbage, this slush that's left over, and, and really, like, it's just everywhere you look. And um, we were downtown. My brother-in-law lives downtown, and he had a birthday party, invited us all over in their backyard. They've filled in the backyard with water, so you have, like, this ice skating rink there in the back, and the kids were skating around, that type of thing. And as we're trying to get through the side streets in Buffalo, which they can't get the heavy equipment in to clear out, there's just this layer of slush that's getting to be shin deep, calf deep. Now, I say that because last week, as we were digging into this series here in Romans, uh, we're in this series called The Beautiful Collision, and we're going to talk about that a little bit as we get into it. You might feel like that some of the muck that we were getting into was getting to be about calf deep or maybe even knee deep. Well, this week we're going to go and we're going to take it another level and go about neck deep, okay? So if you can imagine yourself in that situation of all that just garbage that's going to be in the streets this week, we're, we're going about neck deep, and we'll go there this week, and then next week, uh, boy, stay tuned, because next week we're going to come in and we're going to have a seat, and then someone is just going to push us all the way under, is what's going to happen next week. Because when we talk about the filth that is in us, we have to realize the basis of where that comes from. It is the sin nature, and Paul is going to go there for us this morning. So if you have uh, not been here, again, uh, this is a series in Romans, in the book of Romans, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, we call it the beautiful collision because this, this series really brings together where God's grace and wrath come and make a collision. One of the most famous uh, scriptures in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And at the beginning of that verse you have for God so loved. And there's this beautiful picture of his love for his people and his love for you and love for me. But at the end of that verse there is this, this piece that said that there are people who will perish if they do not believe in this son. There's this collision that happens between grace and God's wrath. And we have to come and put those things together to see why it is beautiful, to see why it is important. So if you've been with us in this series, we've made our way. There's like this micro-sermon that happens here after the beginning of the book has opened up and talked about the beauty of the gospel and how important it is for us to understand the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it says in Romans 1.16. And we grab a hold of that verse, and then Paul takes us through, and he talks through certain groups of people immediately following that. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks. The first week we talked about the pagan. Uh, the one who is so far from Christ, they're oblivious to the things of Christ. They are doing evil things and seeming to enjoy the evil that they are in. And then last week we talk about the moralist, those who look down on those around them and say, you know what, uh, you guys need to, to get your act together because I'm living here in such a better, better state. 
This week we're going to talk about the, elitist, uh, the elitist or the religious elite. And then next week we'll get into the entire human race because at the end of the day we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 will tell us and we fall short. So as we uh, look into this week's passage, the, the elitists and the hypocrisy that comes with that, uh, it, I think it's fitting that we are talking about this on Super Bowl Sunday because a certain person comes to mind for me when I think about the elitist and the hypocrite. He's going for a certain number of Super Bowl victories. Perhaps you know who this person is. Uh, and they're going for number, uh, number five, right? Number six. It's number six. Yeah, I did it wrong. He's already got five. He's going to go for number six. So instead of being awkwardly mean, I won't talk about him. I'm going to talk about uh, Lance Armstrong. How many of you know who Lance Armstrong is? Yes, we know about Lance Armstrong. So Lance Armstrong won more uh, in, the, in the Tour de France, anyone else ever done it in history, and he won seven titles of the Tour de France title. And he, over and over and over, put himself on this high pedestal to say that he was better than anyone else in the world. He beat, he beat cancer, he beat every other athlete in the world. He was the very best, seven-time champion of the greatest element of his sport. He was at the top of his game. And so what he's able to do is stand up on the podium... Yeah, you thought I was going to do that. Am I? Yeah. So stands up on the podium, Lance Armstrong, I think they have like a teddy bear or something that they hold when they're, and they hold it above their head and say, I am the very best at this. And so what happens when you have this elitist personality, there's someone who says, I am better than anyone else who's ever come. I'm the greatest of all time, someone might say. And um, so if, you, if you're thinking through that lens, there is a foundation that that person is standing on. They have built for themselves. And what's going to happen here this morning as we look here in Romans chapter 1 and going into chapter 2 and then getting into chapter 3, what Paul is doing, he is systematically going through and breaking down the foundation that that person is standing on. And so if you turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 2, I'm going to start with a statement from a, a, a book that is uh, very popular in my reading cycle. Uh, something that I was uh, told that I had to read as a kid, and, and I just keep going back to it. And this great theologian has this statement to say in his book, Huckleberry Finn. If you remember the story of Huck Finn, he is going down the Mississippi River. He's, he's this orphan who's living his life carefree, and he, he's adopted into a family who is a church-going people. And, and as he's there, he's interacting. There's this big con going on because they uh, are going to uh, move through this area and they're going to take over. Uh, this, there's this evangelist that comes through and they're going to take money from people. But he talks about really the scene that is being set. It was, it was pretty awful preaching. Maybe you're reminded of that this morning. All about brotherly love and such like tiresomeness. This is Huck saying this. But everybody said it was a good sermon. They all talked it over going home, and they had such a powerful lot to say about faith and good works and free grace. Then he goes on later to say, and then they went on with their feud. These two families are at each other's throats constantly, and Huck just kind of comes through and is, and is thrown into the middle of it. And he says, they, they had a great worship service. They came together, they enjoyed one another's company. They, they had really good things to say about the preaching and about good works and free grace. And then they went on with their feud. And we can see this foolishness in others, but hopefully this morning 
there will be a reality check for you and for me here in Romans. So Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, you see this. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what's superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law embodied the knowledge and truth. If you call yourself that... He's going to fill in the rest of that. As, as, as Paul is writing this, there's people who are reading that, who people who are hearing Pastor Paul preach his sermon, and they're saying, that's good, man. That is good. I can Instagram that. Uh, I, I can post that. Here's Twitter feed. I, I got to set this thing out because they're excited about what we saying. He said, that is me. And Paul is about to disassemble their argument piece by piece. So I want you to circle a couple of things. Basically, every time you see the word if, I want you to do this. I'm going to use this as an illustration for you this morning because we said this is uh, the grounds that he is standing on this morning. So if you call yourself a Jew, circle that. If you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide. So every time he says if, he's, he's building a case for who they think that they are. And little by little, he's disassembling the platform that they, the elitists, the religious elite of the day are standing on. And he is pulling it apart. And he is creating a, a situation where I'm not going to stand on this thing in front of all of you. That's basically what it comes down to. One of the legs is missing. It says, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, if you are convinced that you are in a space that is better than the people around you, if you're convinced that you are in a very special, peculiar people, you then, verse 21, who teach others, why don't you teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, why do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. And what happens is those who cloak themselves in religious ritual, and let's, let's open this up a little bit so that we see it in our modern context, because he is writing to a Jewish audience who is very much diving into religious practices of the day, because this is who defined them. But we can, we can open this up and see it today, not just in the Jewish tradition, but we can see it in a Christian tradition. We can see it as someone who is a spiritualist of any sort. They say, We've, I've got this thing figured out. I'm going to call myself a, and you can fill in whatever religion they want to fill in. I'm going to rely on the law or the teachings of that religion. I know God's will or the God's will or the greatest will. I know what is best, and I'm convinced that I can be a guide for you. How many times do we come across that personality? How many times are you that personality? Those who cloak themselves in religious ritual need to know that hypocrisy is, is coming. It's not far behind. It's not far behind because when you cloak yourself in that, here's what religious hypocrisy does. This is your first fill-in for you this morning. You have a white sheet of paper in your bulletin to help you follow along where I'm going today so that you know uh, really the main ideas of what I'm trying to get across. Romans chapter 2, 17 through 24, the main idea here, the religious hypocrisy discredits God's name. Religious hypocrisy discredits God's name. Here it says, verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles or among any other religious practice other than your own. It is being, being blasphemed or being made fun of or being made a fool of because of you. This is the root sin that we need, to, we need to deal with here is dishonoring God or not to glorify God. We have as our mission statement here as a, as a church, we glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Number one, first thing we put out there is that we glorify God. And here we find that the sin that is being committed here is that they do not glorify God or they do not honor God. We will see in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Here, the Jews have, have cheered Paul because they think that he's doing, he's doing a good job. And, and Paul is saying, no, it's the Gentiles. And we'll get there. It's the Gentiles who are doing a good job, who are honoring God and giving thanks. And they were the ones who were pointing. Because remember when we talked about the pagans, they said, look at their evil practices. Look how they're living their lives. He said, okay. Let's talk about that. Let's get to the, to the root of that issue. Because they're not honoring God and they're not giving thanks and they're looking down on them. But now Paul is going to bring the same charge against this religious elite, these religious hypocrites. Because religious hypocrisy discredits God's name, dishonors the glory of God by their disobedience. See, God had chosen Israel to glorify him. God had chosen Israel to be his people. But when they disobey his word, they dishonor him. When we disobey God's word, we dishonor him. So sometimes obeying God's word is, is presented as this path to blessing. If you, if you uh, follow God's word and follow his teachings, then there will be blessings waiting for you and for your family. If we love our wives as Christ loved the church, then our wives will be happy with us. If we consistently show God's kindness and grace towards our children, we will be blessed with happy and gracious and beautiful children. God knows what's best for us. If we are obedient to his word, there will be a blessing. And disobedience pulls away that blessing and we will see pain and we will see trouble. See, the problem with that is that we are missing the point of why. We are missing the point of why. We do not obey God and God's teaching because we want to receive a blessing. We do it because we are commanded to honor and glorify God. He is infinitely worthy of all honor and all glory and all praise. We should fear disobedience because it is God's holy name that would be dishonored. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We should fear the sin of hypocrisy, of putting a veneer of godliness over disobedient hearts because we do not want to dishonor the all-glorious name of God, the all-glorious name of his son Jesus, who died on the cross for what? For our sins so that we could give God the greatest amount of glory. Religious hypocrisy discredits God's name. Here's your next fill-in. Religious hypocrisy deceives the hypocrite. Religious hypocrisy deceives the hypocrite. Verse 25, circumcision has a value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision are a law breaker. 
There's more words saying circumcision in those two verses than circumcision than one would read probably in any other piece of literature this morning, certainly, right? How much have you read through verses on circumcision? Not many. For those who are children in the room, just ask your parents, I guess, afterwards. But this is an, is an outward expression for a male Jew that would demonstrate that there was something different about them than the other pagans around them, the other cultures around them. God institutes this uh, as, as a sign that he gives Abraham in the Old Testament, his covenant 500 years before he gives it to Moses again to remind him of this covenant that his people, this chosen people, these Israelites were going to be different, that the men were going to lead different, they were going to be at least noticeably different, something was different about them because they were God's people. This ritual, this God-ordained ritual, circumcision, was of value to the Jews as a reminder of the covenant God had made with them. And God had set them morally apart from the other people around them. In the same few verses, when he gives Abraham, Abram this command, he changes his name to Abraham. He changes his wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah because he is making a distinct change that they would be known differently from this point forward because God's covenant with them, his people. Paul first goes after the Jew here because of their pride in their birth and being uh, that the Jews uh, were enslaved to sin. Because Jews here had, had arrogantly even said that they were not going to be, they were not going to be held captive by anyone. Uh, Jesus confronted the Jews with this idea that they pointed to the fact that they were in the lineage of Abraham, and so they would not be enslaved to anyone. Skipping over the whole fact that they had been slaves in Egypt, and that their entire lives, their entire culture, their entire heritage was filled with slavery. But for some reason, they grabbed a hold of this very specific part and tried to put themselves on a pedestal to be able to say that they were so specifically and specially above other people. And so what happens here is that Paul takes another stab at the platform that they're standing on. Good luck with that. The platform that says that there's something so much better about them than anybody else, that God has something so much more spectacular for them than anybody else. And he's saying that this is a flawed platform for you to be standing on, that there is, there's a problem here with what you are doing, that there is no way that you would be able to stand on this for a long period of time because what happens is this idea certainly of circumcision that there is a problem because it is a problem of the heart. Now I could try to stand this thing up, but you know as well as I do that it is not going to stand. And for the sake of illustration, I could go through here and see that how Paul has demonstrated in, in those first four statements that if you call yourself, and he goes through four different ways, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you know his will, if you are convinced that you are a guide, and he disassembles each of those arguments because what is happening here is that they are standing on unstable ground. Because Jesus has taken on the, the religious leaders of the day, Paul follows suit, and so should we. Paul follows suit to be able to say, if you are going to set yourself apart, that you have got it all figured out, that you are connected through heritage, through the physical heritage that they had because they were in the lineage of Abraham, or the heritage that they had because they were part of this religious culture that said that they were part of Israel, God's chosen people, they were grossly misapplying it. 
Moses had told the Jews in Deuteronomy, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But Moses knew that his people were prone to be puffed up with pride, thinking that God had chose them because they deserved it in some way. So he goes on to tell them that God didn't choose them because of anything in them, but rather because of his love and his faithfulness to his own covenant that he had made with Abraham. He points out the fact that the covenant that he makes with Abraham was one that he was going to fulfill himself, whether Abraham had anything to do with it or not. That was the covenant promise that had been made to their forefathers. And so what happens here is you get this mistaken religious hypocrisy takes over and you get this, this, it fools the hypocrite himself. He's living in a world where he thinks that he has gotten a standing in the world, that he has gotten a, a certain place that he can place himself and look out on the rest of the world and look down on these other people even as the argument is being made here in Romans. You see, the the teachings of Jesus, which Paul picks up on here very clearly, are very upside down to the teachings that they understood. You see, Jesus taught that the first would be last. Jesus taught that the weak would be the ones who would become strong, and the strongs would be the strong. The strong ones would become weak. One of Jesus' greatest, greatest parables that talks about the beauty and the, and the glory of God and the way that he loves his people is through this man called the Good Samaritan. This is offensive to the religious leaders of the day. This is he, he names them in that parable. And why was it offensive? Well, because it's upside down, because the Samaritans are supposed to be at the bottom of the totem pole, and at the top of the totem pole are the religious elite, the Jews. And again, we fast forward that into our culture today and whatever spiritual backgrounds, religious trappings you want to put with it, whatever rituals you want to put with it, you say, no, here's the people who've got it figured out and the rest of you, you better pay attention and do what they are saying. It's an unstable stance. And so what Jesus does and what Paul does the same is is he flips things upside down and says, if we're going to repair this, you've got to look at things a little bit differently. We're going to have to look at things a little bit differently. I'm going to look at things as a condition of the heart. You see, as the next villain is going to show you, the righteous heart, the righteous heart closes the gap. The righteous heart closes the gap. You see, there's this gap that forms between ritualism and a realness of the heart and reality. And what happens when you have that is you've got a person who's living their lives in a way that they're pursuing after a ritual and they've lost the purpose and the point of what they're doing. And you see a right heart says, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to live in these rituals because I believe that there is something there that is important for me to learn. There's something there that I can uh, gather about the greatness of God through that process. And so as pieces start to come back together, it is done so like this. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward and physical appearance. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the what? Of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Paul is pointing out that the, the, 
the ritual of circumcision specifically was one that is supposed to point us back to something much larger, one that is supposed to point us back to something that has greater significance than just circumcision, but a significance of the greatness of God and his covenant for his people. And so as the pieces start to come together, the gap starts to be closed. Ironically, I've got a gap here and I'm trying to close here as I'm putting this thing back together. This gap is the difference between the way that life is really being lived because that's what our heart is and what this ritual tells us is going to be lived. And so when you put these pieces together, you start to have some stability in that because of a right heart. And so without the reality of God and of God's work, uh, what had happened here with the religious rulers of the day is that it, he, he points out that what they were doing was, was meaningless and was, was worthless. They had come together to put, put stock in the ritual of circumcision itself. There was even those who were teaching that there was no way that someone could be sent to hell if they were circumcised. This is what some of the rabbis were teaching. And Paul applies these things and says, no, this is foolishness. It's a condition of the heart. It's an understanding of what God has been doing for you and in you is going to make the difference. That's the stable ground on which we stand. So how do we apply Paul's words to our rituals? We, we, we don't have the same rituals, perhaps. Uh, some aren't so far away, but there are a growing number of people who are raised in evangelical backgrounds that are going to other uh, Orthodox Christianity sometimes, or even Roman Catholic backgrounds, or Episcopal churches, because there are rituals that they feel like draw them closer to God. Isn't that interesting? That some of those rituals would help them get closer to God. Are we missing something by, by skipping some of these rituals? Well, first we need to be clear that there are only two rituals. We call them sacraments or, 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 or things that are ordained that we believe that happen here. These ordinances that are through the New Testament, what we believe to be true. The first is baptism. Behind us there's a baptismal tank that we use often, as, as often as we possibly can. And then here in front of me, we have this morning a great illustration of the Lord's Supper this time of communion that happens. These two things we believe is scripturally mandated for us to take on, that these rituals are important to us as a body of believers to follow through with, understanding that these rituals point us to a relationship with God. To add other rituals or even overinvest in these two rituals is a mistake if we do it outside of a condition of a righteous heart. It closes the gap when our hearts are correct and we are allowed to, to practice a ritual but do so in a way that understands the value that comes from being there. You see, in the New Testament, we are told that every believer is a priest in First Peter chapter 2. So we don't need a human priest. We don't need someone to, to uh, go through the practices that they went through in the Old Testament with us any longer. Uh, we don't need someone to be dressed a certain way in special robes and vestments or offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people or a mass on behalf of the people or read scripture on behalf of the people. Because why? Because we are each ordained as a priest, holy before God because of what Jesus has done. So we can each go into God's presence because he is the complete and final sacrifice for our sins. <coughs> the New Testament's also clear that being baptized or partaking in communion are of no spiritual value 
unless you do it with a heart that calls out to, to Christ, that you have faith in Christ. That is the closing of the gap. Baptism, whether it's performed on an infant or an adult, and I don't believe and we don't practice infant baptism here, and even adult baptism is wrong when it is of the mindset that baptism in and of itself does anything but get a person wet. We need to understand what it means. That does not convey salvation or forgiveness of sins. Neither does taking of the Lord's Supper. When we come together and commune with one another, we're doing so because there is something more significant going on in our hearts than what this ritual demonstrates. If the baptized person acts in obedience to Christ as a confession of the saving faith that is in them, then baptism is of great value. Which is why generally when we baptize someone here as a church, we do our best to be able to put together a video for you to hear the story of how them sharing with what God is doing in their lives, what God has changed in their hearts, because that is the difference that is being made. And baptism is an outward expression of that inward change that is already happening in their lives. Baptism in and of itself, that ritual is meaningless. It is lost. If we partake in the Lord's Supper as a reminder of his death on our behalf, of all that that means to us, that Jesus died for us, and he said, this do in remembrance of me. And so in doing so, we're remembering the great cost and sacrifice that was given for you and for me at the cross, and the way that he rose again, resurrected on the third day, on your behalf and on mine, that's a big deal. That is a great thing to celebrate. It is of great value. You see, a righteous heart closes the gap between ritual and reality. Because in and of itself, that ritual is meaningless. But when a righteous heart is involved, it has all the meaning in the world. Righteous hearts desire for more of their God-given identity. Righteous hearts desire, they want, they are hungry for more of God. It's given identity. The last half of verse 29 says this. Such a person's praise, the righteous heart, the right heart before God, this person's praise does not come from other people, but it comes from God. It does not come from other people. It does not come from those surrounding them. You see, when that religious elite was standing on the stool for all to see on this platform that they had built for themselves, for all to see, they were looking for the praise of the people around them. But a righteous heart desires and longs for their identity to be found in Christ. We must know how God sees us. A little over a year ago, we went through a series in the book of Ephesians. And the first chapter of Ephesians is one of the richest chapters in the identity that we find in, in, in Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul addresses the church in Ephesus and he explains this new identity and the person that, that you and I are when we are found and looked at by Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been chosen. We have been adopted. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. We have been lavished with grace and unconditionally loved and always accepted. That's the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. We are pure. We are blameless. We are forgiven. We have received the hope of spending eternity with a holy God. We are in Christ. And these aspects of our identity cannot be altered because of who he is, not because of who I am or what we do. 
When we live out an identity that is based on how God sees us, we no longer feel the need to find our worth in external things. You see, this person's praise is not coming from other people. This person's praise is coming from God. His identity is found. Her identity is found in God. It would free us up to live in this manner. When, when that is the foundation on which we stand, it would free us up to be confident and stable instead of changing who we are based on the group of people who we are around. Instead of changing the things that we talk about because of the different group of people of what they are talking about, suddenly all of our language changes. Suddenly our likes and our dislikes change. All of that changes. Why? Because we have lost our identity somewhere in the mix. But instead, if we see ourselves the way that God sees us, we will not let them try to define our significance. It would give us the opportunity to experience God's unconditional love in new and in fresh ways. It allows us to confidently and boldly share his love with others. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's certainly a battle. It's certainly a battle. We live in a world that seeks to define us by its standards every single day. But it's a battle that when we engage in it, it could impact everything about us. You may be here this morning, and as we've gone through this, you know that you're, you need to close the gap. But you need to realize that you cannot do that in and of your own strength. A righteous heart only comes from complete and total surrender to a holy God. And the religious trappings that you and I can get caught up in sometimes to think that this, this doing these things and following this formula is going to get us in a closer relationship with God, we are strongly mistaken. There are many this morning who have grown up in the church, who have grown up in this church, Believing that if I just perform well, if I just come to church on Sunday morning, if I'm involved in a group that meets during the week, if I read my Bible every day, if I follow through with these steps, then I will be at right standing before God. And it becomes a ritual without understanding the real position that we are in, the real position that you are in before God has everything to do with a heart that is His. And that's it. And that's it. And as we look at this this morning, maybe Psalm chapter 16, it's on the screen for you this morning. Maybe this would speak to you this morning. The psalmist understands where he stands before God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The gap has been closed. It's okay. It's good. It's healthy for someone to desire more of that God-given identity. God, will you give me more? Will you give me an, another taste? The Apostle Peter says, first we desire to drink the milk of God's word, but then we're going to desire the meat afterwards. Many of you are desiring more. And that's God at work in your heart. But don't be confused. The hypocrite is the one who is confused by his own hypocrisy, thinking that pursuing the religious rituals are the things that grow you deeper. Don't be confused. 
Don't be a hypocrite. Understand that that desire for God-given identity has to come from God and that connection that comes between you and Him. So this morning we are going to appropriately have a time of communion. We understand that this ritual is a condition of the heart. Ironically, the Apostle Paul, as he is writing this, he is writing it to a group of people who have communion all out of whack. They were practicing communion. The Corinthians were practicing the Lord's Supper together, but they had gotten themselves out of whack because there were some who were, the, the religious elite were sitting in a certain place and having a certain type of meal, and they were saying, if you are a Gentile or if you are someone who is in sin, you, you sit a little bit farther away from the table. You, you, you get served after us because we've got it all figured out. And the Apostle Paul goes back and he says, let's talk about this again. Let's see what this was about. And that's when he gives us the marching orders for what we know now as the Lord's Supper and the way that we perform this once a month at least here as a church. So the communion attendees, if you'll come forward. There's some of this that we do on a monthly basis that is ritual. Even as I'm asking them to come forward, there's nothing spectacular about it. That is not written in Scripture. No one has to come forward. No one has to pick a tray and carry it around and hand it this way. And that, that's what we do here, and that's okay. But that is a ritual. And if we make that part of the ritual the important thing rather than the condition of the heart, we are mistaken. So this morning as we go through this ritual, can you narrow the gap a little bit this morning? Can you close the gap between what is ritual and what is reality? Where's the real place in your heart this morning? In a moment, we'll pass the communion trays, and one of them will have the bread in it, that the bread uh, symbolizing the body of Christ that has been broken for you. And the next one will have uh, the, the grape juice symbolizing Jesus' blood, which was spilled for you and for me. As we go through this ritual, yes, can you make a connection to your heart, understanding that it's not about a piece of bread, it's not about a little sip of grape juice. But there's something tangible there that helps us. And we close the gap. We narrow the gap. We get a little bit closer to understanding what Jesus meant. We said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm the only one. So quit putting your trust in these other trappings of religiosity and put your trust in me. So this morning, will you take some time to reflect? It's more than sipping of a, a grape juice, eating, it's, it's an important part, this simple act. We call it communion because we are communing one with another. We are coming together. It's a solemn time to think about Christ's sacrifice for you and for me. It's a time to evaluate our lives based on a holy God. Some of you have built tall pedestals. And people can see you and they're excited about you. And perhaps this morning, Paul, through this book of Romans, through the gospel of Romans, has disassembled that a little bit this morning. Lean into that, would you? Because he's getting at a heart issue. As we reflect on what Jesus did on the cross, it is a heart issue that he needed to repair. He did not come to correct our religious trappings, friends. He's not to come to correct the formula. 
He came to repair broken hearts. Those who were far, far away from God. And those who were close but confused. So this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 said this as he's talking about Jesus. For I receive the Lord, I deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. So that's where we'll begin this morning. Dear Lord, I pray that you will use this time as a matter of reflection, a condition of the heart. Lord, be reminded what you did on the cross when your body was broken for us. In Jesus' name.